Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly biotechnology podcast that's not just about biotechnology. Providing information to help you change hearts and minds. Moving innovations to application with communication. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Bencelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Falta. Kevin, once again, thank you for the opportunity to share the sciences with with our listeners. And today we're going to be talking about gene drives. And our guest today is is Dr. Fred Gould, who is the William Neal Reynolds Professor of Agriculture in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology at North Carolina State University. Welcome, Fred. It's great to have you back. Yeah, thank you. So, um, yeah, so the the topic of gene drives is interesting, but before, and we're going to get into that, but before we do, I, I think it's a good idea to give our listeners sort of a a bit of a, you know, background into who you are and what you do, your in, your professional interests, and, and then we'll get into gene drives. Um, but yeah, tell us about yourself. Well, um, I was trained as an evolutionary biologist in my graduate uh, career and uh, then realized I really wanted to do work that was more applied and turned myself into an applied evolutionary biologist. And uh, mostly uh, originally in the field of agriculture, uh, looking at evolution of pests, and um, especially in terms of pesticide resistance and other things, the idea was, could we use evolutionary biology knowledge to slow down the rate at which uh, pests adapted to the way we were controlling them? And uh, this led to later on to the fact that uh, researchers were genetically engineering crops to be resistant to insects or to kill insects. And uh, our concern was that insects would probably adapt to these crops. And so we were coming up with approaches in coordination with EPA to try to plant these crops and develop them in ways that would slow down the rate that insects adapted to them. Mm-hmm. So um, that went on uh, for a while. And then um, researchers started genetically engineering insects themselves. And the question began, could we use genetically engineered insects to control or change insect populations to decrease their pestiferous nature? 
And um, there, the evolutionary question was more, how do we get these kind of changes into the insect populations? And in a way, instead of slowing down evolution, the question was, how could we make it work more rapidly? So that's when I started getting into the issues of genetic pest management, which quickly evolved into these issues of gene drive. Yeah. Yeah, so you, I, I've probably actually read some of your papers over the years on uh, on BT and, and, and reducing the evolution of uh, resistance to uh, BT. It's interesting to have you interview for on gene drives. So um, the you and, uh, and a colleague, Dr. Jennifer Kuzma, are co-leaders, um, directors of, a, of an institution there at, uh, or a center at uh, NC State. Tell us about that. Yeah, so uh, thank you. Um, you know, I was working on these kind of very technical aspects of uh, genetic engineering crops and so on, uh, but it became very apparent quickly that it wasn't just a technical issue. This was both a technical and societal issue. And uh, over time, we developed a graduate uh, training grant and program to train students more broadly across the uh, natural and social sciences, including humanities and ethics. And that grew into um, a center called the Genetic Engineering Society Center. And uh, we were fortunate to be able to hire a few new faculty members uh, in social sciences, and especially uh, Jennifer Kuzma, mm-hmm. who um, is originally trained in the biological sciences, but trained, retrained herself in social sciences. And you'll be hearing uh, from her uh, on the other end of this. I'll yeah, probably just right. more technical things. That, yeah. that, that's exactly right. We have a, This is really a two-part series. You're the first uh, speaking about the technical, biological aspects of gene drives. And then uh, Jennifer is going to be interviewed uh, second. We've already got that scheduled to sort of be the follow-up to look at the governance and social issues. So, yeah, I'm really excited about this. Um, and, and, and students, there's a good lesson in here to interface with social scientists. I think we natural scientists, um, really can benefit and learn a lot from, um, from social scientists. And I do want to mention one more thing about your background, uh, Fred, before we go into gene drives. And Fred is, was the chair of, um, a committee appointed by the National Academy of Sciences to review, uh, relatively recently, uh, genetically engineered crops, genetically engineered crops, experiences and prospects is the name of the report that was published in 2016. It's an outstanding report. So Fred, I, I actually, that's the first where we first interacted. So uh, you've got quite a distinguished history and we're so glad you're here. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing this. So gene drives, they're, they're different from genetically engineered crops and, and in fact, there are many, ask, many questions, of course, we all have. I have, certainly. So maybe I'll just launch, let you launch into it. What are gene drives? Yeah, okay. So gene drives are sequences of DNA that are inherited um, in more than Mendelian ratios. I think many of your viewers are familiar with Mendelian ratios, sort of like if you have one copy of a gene for something and you're uh, mate ha- does not have that, half of your offspring will get one copy of that gene, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you have gene drive, instead of one half of your offspring getting one copy, more than one half will. It could even be 100% of your offspring will get that gene. 
So if you think about that, the term super Mendelian inheritance means that more than 50% get that gene. So if you think of a neutral trait that you happen to have one copy of and you keep reproducing and your children and grandchildren keep reproducing, every time one of them has that allele, as we call it, it's going to be inherited more than normal expectation. So even if it's not selected for, it selects itself into the population. Mm-hmm. And, they, and these elements are naturally occurring, and uh, they uh, make themselves uh, inherited in this way in many different mechanisms. And just to say that human beings have a huge number of what's called transposable elements. A large portion of our genome is made up of those, and they really typically do no good for your fitness, but they certainly do good for their own fitness by winding up being in more of the offspring than expectation. So that's the natural occurrence of those. Yeah, that, that I found very interesting. So um, drive, I think, I think the concept of gene drive, it took me a while to understand that, f- that phrase, but it, what it means is basically there is a genetic um, element that drives a gene through a population, even if it's harmful to the population. Is that a, a way to think of um, gene drive? Well, yes, indeed. You know, uh, gene drives can uh, work their way into a population even if they reduce the fitness of a population. Yeah. And I I would just say that if anyone is interested, you know, uh, Austin Burt and Robert Trivers in 2006 published a, a book called Genes in Conflict that talk all about the different kinds of natural gene drives. And sometimes we, even if you're studying, it's like a 600-page book. It's got all sorts of wonderful examples. And um, the reason I bring this up is often we're not even aware that there's a gene drive because it's gone to fixation, right? It's, It's so good, it's gone to fixation, so it's part of the natural population. It's hard to tease out that it's there. And there's plenty, I don't want to go into that in any more detail. If you're interested, read the book. Yeah. But um, there's, there's plenty there that helped. And actually, uh, Austin Burt, who's one of the founders of this field in a way, um, you know, got his inspiration, I think, from the natural gene drives. Huh, yeah, yeah. I, I, again, that was one of the points that surprised me early on in the, the reading that I've done on gene drives is they're natural. And in fact, a lot is known about them. I mean, so, yeah, I'm going to get a copy of that book. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> so, actually a wonderful book. And, you know, no equations, no nothing. It explains everything uh, very well. Wonderful. Good. So, um, so what are they doing and why do they exist? I mean, I, I want to talk more about the, the human use of gene drives or the possible use, but w- why do they exist in nature? I think you've... you've, you've yeah, well, I, I think that um, <laughs> the subtitle to that book, you know, it's called Genes in Conflict, subtitle, The Biology of Selfish Genetic Elements. Okay. So basically, they evolve because they're, you know, selfish. They uh, do good for themselves, but not for anything around them. Genetic parasites. And, and if you... Uh, you know, learn more and more about population genetics, you see that that makes sense, that of course they're going to be uh, functioning. And of course, if you have too many of those, it causes a meltdown of your genome. Uh, so there's a battle, and that's why it's called genes in conflict. Because the, the other piece with all gene drives is that they may start out, but the organism that 
actually has some kind of a genetic change that makes it hard for these selfish genetic elements to have more than 50% representation, those individuals are the ones that survive. So that's why the genes in conflict is that, of course, you know, for an organism to maintain its highest fitness, it doesn't want a bunch of these things piling up that could interfere with its fitness. Or want is a, a bad word there, but, you know, they yeah. survive more. And uh, there's plenty of examples in nature of failed gene drives. Huh. Okay, good. So one thing it, it, to make sure we distinguish uh, clearly to the listeners is that genetically engineered crops are crops that have been genetically engineered. Um, mm-hmm. Gene drives are other, not the crops themselves are not engineered, but the organism of interest, maybe the pest of that crop or, mm-hmm. or the, um, the a mosquito that transmits uh, the malaria pathogen or, or an invasive weed where we're actually manipulating genetically those those uh, organisms. And I, so I wanted to make sure we distinguish those two. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important. And, and it goes back to this thing about the natural gene drives and the use of them. Remember I said that, wow, you know, if you load yourself up with a bunch of uh, selfish genetic elements, gene drives, you know, that could lower your fitness. And well, it doesn't take too much to go from seeing that to saying, oh, gee, if I want to decrease the fitness of a pest, yeah. why don't I load them up with genes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with genetic elements. Genetic, genetic Actually, elements. the earliest ones, I mentioned the transposons in humans, but the earliest attempts at gene drive were with transposons in insects. The idea that you could uh, engineer this transposon and put it into a new organism and have it just riddle the genome with these transposons and cause the population to crash or to change its nature. Yeah. So uh, those did not work. Those are, those are uh, a decade ago, uh, but they were uh, made sense of that transfer from something that's naturally occurring and then just usurping it to uh, a purpose to help humans. Right. You know, I, I have to say I have this long, <laughs> it's a long, you know, honestly to have like a, take a one credit online course on, transposons, jumping genes, yeah, uh, because yeah. they're just so fascinating. Right, right. So, and anyway, that that would be for another day. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, the, so the question then is, why would humans want to create a, a gene drive? What, what are, would be some of the reasons? Well, um, so there, there are two general kinds of ideas that people have had about gene drives in terms of using them to decrease pest damage. Okay. Now, one of them is to do just what we've been talking about is to, you know, basically put a little time bomb in the insect population that keeps increasing and increasing. But every time it becomes homozygous, instead of one copy, two copies, it causes mortality of the insects or causes just the females not to have any offspring anymore. Right. So if you keep doing that, you're going in two directions. One, those genes keep multiplying because they come in super Mendelian inheritance. And then there's a, uh, the other side to it is that they're being selected against because all of their offspring, you know, half of their offspring are dying, right? So as they get more uh, numerous. But that's one approach, and that could decrease population size. And, you know, there's a lot of population genetics involved in this, but it's not too hard to understand that, you know, as these things become more and more common, they're causing more and more mortality in the population. Uh, 
Um, and as long as they're not expressed when it's a heterozygote, when there's only one copy, it's possible for them to infiltrate a population mm -hmm. because heterozygotes survive great, but then they become homozygotes in the next generation. So it's an interesting kind of uh, biology, but that's only one approach. And of course, if you have a pest that's causing damage, that would help, right? right. Um, it, the other is if you have something that vectors a disease, you know, could you, instead of knocking them out of the population, put one of these gene drive sequences into the pest, but linked to that would be a gene that would knock out the actual disease-causing organism. And just as an example of that, there's something called in interference RNA. And uh, some researchers uh, back about Oh, almost 10 years ago, uh, developed a strain of Aedes aegypti, the mosquito that transmits dengue and Zika. And what they did was they put interference RNA uh, gene into that Aedes aegypti. And when the female took a blood meal that had the virus in it, that interfering RNA interfered with the uh, virus replication. So now that mosquito could not transmit the dengue 2 strain. Mm -hmm. So um, the mosquito mosquito's population would not be affected. Exactly. You would only change its characteristics. So it would go from a dangerous thing to a little nuisance. Yeah. And of course, though, you can't just put that gene in that makes the mosquito not transmit the disease because if you just threw it out in the field, you'd have thousands and thousands that would. So what you want to do is take that gene that doesn't let the mosquito transmit the virus and you link it to a sequence of DNA that causes itself to have supramendelian inheritance. So it sort of hitchhikes along with that gene drive. So you put that into the population at low frequency, yeah. gene drive takes it right into the population to high frequency, and then the population transforms not to be able to transmit disease. So, so pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, really. Uh, so, I think the concept is very Yeah, cool. the concept is cool, right? <laughs> it is. And we'll we'll certainly get into yeah. risk uh dis discussion of risk, but yeah. but to, we're 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 making good progress in, you know, improving my understanding. So what, what so when it, so you want to put in a like a hitchhike genetic uh section that that will allow that that gene of interest to move around, you know, move through the population. Right. Is is that hitchhiker Genetic sequence is that does that is that modeled after sequences from nature or how do how does a scientist decide you know what what that hitchhiker should look like? Ah, uh, that's a, a great uh, comment. So of course, interference RNA or RNAi as it's called, right, is something that people discovered in plants and then in other things, and these are uh, natural defense systems against uh, pathogens. Uh, they basically cut up the pathogen DNA. And I, I don't want to get into a, a, a whole detail on it, but that occurs naturally. And people get this idea, oh, yeah, well, maybe I could design it to go after what I want to hit, right? So uh, the mosquito itself doesn't have a specific RNAi against that gene in the virus, but actually, mosquitoes have RNAi machinery that helps them cut down on viral load. Uh, but it's a different, somewhat different process. So basically, it's taking a natural process 
and manipulating it to your advantage. And so what about the drive itself? Is So the RNAi part, you know, you take this natural process that, take advantage of a natural process in the, in the right. mosquito, but what about the genetics of the drive itself? Mm. Is that modeled after nature or where does it come from? Well, that's uh, <laughs> one more <laughs> interesting kind of thing. And I guess that's where it goes back to that genes in conflict kind of thing. Okay. Um, it was discovered, uh, and it's talked about in this book on natural drives, that there are things called homing endonucleases. Okay. Okay. Now that's a package, right? Yeah, right. Uh, so, okay. Nuclease. That means it's some kind of a molecule that digests nucleotides or that cuts nucleotides, right? Ace. Right. And then endo, it cuts from within, right? So it cuts a, a, a stretch of DNA or a stretch of RNA in half. Okay. Right? right in the middle or something like that. Right. And then homing is interesting because these things are homing on DNA and typically, though they can home on RNA, um, you could, or you can get some of the new CRISPRs to do that. But the main thing is that what they homing means that they don't just cut DNA randomly. They actually look for a specific sequence in your genome and cut it. And the homing endonucleases uh, that exist in nature require a big stretch of DNA to find it and to cut it. And so maybe there'll only be one stretch like that in your genome that it'll cut. So it's a very interesting things. And um, people worked on that for a long time, including Austin Burt, to try to get those to be able to be manipulated uh, by biochemistry to get them to cut the sequences they wanted them to cut. That turned out to be very difficult. Then people discovered another interesting natural process, and that was this CRISPR-Cas9 system. And that came from archaea, you know, microorganisms that use a certain system to defend against um, viruses that invade the bacteria, bacteriophages. And what they do is when they get invaded by a bacteriophage, they sort of clip a piece of the DNA from the bacteriophage and incorporate it into their own uh, DNA in an interesting way that allows them, if they survive the bacteriophage, the next time it, they experience that bacteriophage, they like have an immune system where they use that DNA that they've sort of stolen from the bacteriophage to fight the bacteriophage by causing them to cut up that DNA. So it's a very interesting process, but the main thing is that they are able to, the way that's done is by using a guide RNA that has that sequence of the bacteriophage and a nuclease that causes the cutting to work together. Okay. And that's where you have the CRISPR-Cas9. So the CRISPR are the guides, and the Cas9 is a uh, nucle nuclease. Okay. So the two together find the location in the genome, and the, then the Cas9 does the cutting. So what they've done there is taken that natural system and that you can manipulate much easier by changing the sequence of these guide RNAs to go after an exact sequence that you want to cut in the genome. Right. right. I think so that's, that's what's done now. And for example, you can cut a sequence in a gene that is necessary for female reproduction. And you cut that and you mess it up. Right, and in heterozygote form, it's okay because you still have a good copy. But when it becomes homozygote, that female can't reproduce. Female dies, yeah, or can't reproduce. I yeah, say. yeah. So, so an important point worth repeating is that natural drives, 
as well as synthetic drives, are very targeted. They have a very very targeted way of of um, a, you know of, of cleaving or disabling DNA. I mean, right. Am I right? Okay. That's that's one, and again, that's one approach. But you could use that same approach with a little bit of a change, mm-hmm. where the sequence that gets inserted is that CRISPR Cas9, the guide RNA in the Cas9. But right with them in the sequence is something that disrupts uh, transmission of the disease, and those you guide them to insert in a place where they won't disrupt the genome, right? So you don't want to guide those to a target that disrupts uh, function. You want to guide them to a nice neutral place where that gene that then later uh, causes the pathogen not to reproduce okay. can be made. So those you. are the two different approaches. One, you're putting, uh, you're guiding it to a critical gene that without it uh, in homozygous form, it doesn't exist, the insect can't reproduce or can't survive. And the other one, you're inserting it in a place where the insect can reproduce just fine, but in the next line of defense there is it has a gene now to defend itself against invasion of this pathogen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the first is like a little inserted time bomb to, dis- to disrupt the gene itself and yeah. suppress the population. The second is um, you want it, you don't want it, you want that gene unit to function because the gene that you've inserted does something desirable like interfering with the reproduction of the virus for example exactly yeah kind of interesting but very it gets a little complicated yeah yeah it does well you know it's it's on on the record now so you know and sometimes in listening to podcasts if i don't quite understand i might back it up a few times (laughs) So, so we've given people the chance to understand these so with that let's take a short break we're talking to Dr. Fred Gould, who is a professor at in the Department of Entomology and Plant Pathology at North Carolina State University. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about gene drives. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Hello, Talking Biotech listeners. My name is Nick Syke. And I wanted to take just a quick moment to tell you about No Ideas Media. That's no with a K and a W. It's a media company I've recently started, and its express purpose is to have pragmatic conversations about divisive topics. And I'm willing to bet that since you're here listening to a biotechnology podcast right now, you'd probably agree that a pragmatic conversation about this topic could benefit a lot of people, especially when we're talking about biotechnology in food, the dreaded GMO. This is the first topic I wanted No Ideas Media to focus on, and I wanted to learn it pretty well. So I traveled like all over the place, Hawaii to Uganda. I interviewed a Schwaka experts, including this pretty awesome guy you might have heard of named Kevin Volta. I'm making videos with all these interviews, and I'd love you to check them out. You can find them by searching No Ideas Media on YouTube or Facebook. Remember, that's no as in knowledge. Every week you'll find a new video featuring some exciting expert or topic to do with genetically engineered food. And the videos are perfect for people who aren't super familiar with the science. So I would really encourage you to share them, especially with people you know who need to take a look at this scary topic of GMO a little more pragmatically. Also, if you want to get in on a surprisingly constructive conversation about this topic and maybe even contribute to changing a few minds, follow No Ideas Media on Facebook and get in on the conversations there. It also really helps us if you subscribe to the No Ideas Media YouTube channel. 
Plus, that way you'll always know when there's something new and exciting to watch and share. And I mean, let's face it, we all want to be in the know, right? That's why you're listening to this podcast, after all, which I think I'll let you get back to about now. Thanks a lot. And we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Fred Gould, who's a professor at uh, North Carolina State University. In fact, uh, a distinguished professor, the, the William Neal Reynolds Professor of Agriculture. And uh, Fred, uh, it's once again a pleasure to have you uh, talking with us today. Yeah, good, good. Let's continue this. So, yes, indeed. So, um, what, one of the really obvious questions that comes up surrounding gene drives, when, when we, we talk about uh, super Mendelian inheritance. This is inheritance beyond the normal normal assortment of genes through you know genetic processes. Um, is is the question is that are there risks and what are those risks and and concerns that are expressed? Yeah. So once this uh, became more available in the public and public started wrapping its brain around this, uh, the question came up: This is a very powerful technology. Sure. So that if you took one of these gene drives that actually causes females not to be able to reproduce and you released it, wouldn't it just keep going and keep going? Uh, I often, uh, with older audiences, use the uh, analogy to Ice Nine in Kurt Vonnegut's novels where you know you all of a sudden teach water to crystallize at a higher temperature and all of a sudden the whole world becomes ice. Mm-hmm. So I think people have that kind of concept of this, that you release a few mosquitoes with the gene drive that stops them from reproducing. It moves all over the whole range of that mosquito species and causes extinction. Right. Right. And not only that, you know, of course, a lot of people think that mosquitoes are a species, right? You know, just that, you know, not, I'm not entomologist, but yeah. And I think, oh, you're going to wipe out all the mosquitoes in the world. And, uh, you know, of course, for some people, that would be great. Yeah. Uh, and people who care about the environment say, wait, wait, there's a role for mosquitoes in the pop, you know, and aren't you going to disrupt the ecosystem by this crazy science idea? Yeah. So, of course, number one, you know, there are thousands of species of mosquitoes and only very few of them uh, can transmit disease. But the question then still becomes when that's explained, well, wait a minute, you're going to knock out Anopheles gambi, this major uh, transmission of, of malaria. And well, you know, isn't there something that uh, these mosquitoes provide to birds or whatever in terms of their nutrition? Aren't you potentially have a risk? And is it possible that those genes would move into a different species? So one of the things that you can answer is the likelihood that it'll move into another species is extremely low because I told you that you make that sequence of the guide RNA very specific to the organism you're using. So the chance that it would fit another species is low. So it could move to another species, but it wouldn't have that gene drive. And then the other thing is uh, to ask that question of couldn't you uh, make a disturbance in the ecosystem? And I think with the mosquitoes, that's probably a pretty low possibility. And you also have to think about the cost and benefits of losing a, you know, one mosquito species out of many, but then saving millions of lives, right? So you got to, you know, look at those kind of counterbalances. But sometimes it gets more tricky. I, I'm involved with a project where uh, on 
islands, oceanic islands, um, there's a lot of extinction going on because invasive species have gotten onto those islands and they're very aggressive and they cause extinction of the local species that only occur on those islands. Um, and I think people know about the dodo bird and all of those kind of things where these things have gone extinct because they're, they're basically sitting ducks for, for this. But one of the major causes of these extinctions are rats and mice that get on the islands and they cause extinction of bird species and plant species. And so there's a group called Island Conservation that tries to get rid of these invasive vertebrates, whether they're cats, feral, feral cats or mice or rodents. Um, but they have they, they actually drop uh, rodenticides out of uh, helicopters, you know, to cause extinction of these things on islands, but they have secondary effects. So um, the question was, could you use genetic approaches that would be more uh, targeted and wouldn't have the off-target effects and might be cheaper? And so the, what about a gene drive in mice uh, that are very well studied genetically, so they're a good thing to work on, and releasing these on an island and cause extinction of these invasive rodents on an island. And sounds like a great idea unless those rodents get off the island. Mm -hmm. And then that's where the Ice Nine thing comes in. Wow, you're going to wipe out mice everywhere, including where they came from originally. Mm -hmm. And so people can get upset. And this is where the social issues come in. Yeah. Right? So yeah. if you go to uh, New York City and you ask somebody, uh, gee, I, I want to wipe out all the rats in New York City, but it could be that it would wipe out all rats. How many, you know, New Yorkers, and I am an ancient New Yorker, what, what would they say to you about, oh, gee, I don't think I want to wipe out the rats in the rest of the world? Or would they say, oh, get them out of my subway? You know, so th there becomes different public perspectives. Other public pe people would not want you to use this technology. Yeah. So. Um, so this has become a big, a big issue in, um, in, especially in conservation biology right now. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, you've, you've kind of framed it very well for the part two with Jennifer Kuzma because, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I think, um, again, we, we natural scientists, you know, pay the most attention to, you know, what we know and what, what, you know, what we are most, uh, comfortable with professionally. And that is the biology and drill down and drill down and try to learn and research and all that. But I, yeah, it gets really complex when we think about, you know, what, what seems the right the way to use these technologies yeah. and, yeah. and who yeah. decides, right? Right. So I think I'll leave that for Jennifer to talk to you about in much more detail, which is sure. very important. I'll, I'd like to, you know, I can keep with the technical issues about, well, uh, number one is where are we with these technologies? Okay, you know, um, are they about to be released as some, could yeah. somebody do this in their garage, you know? Uh, so I'd say that, you know, as much as there's been so much talk about this and huge amounts of monies, I mean, the Gates Foundation has poured a huge amount of money into this. Now uh, the Defense Department is pouring money into this. There's a lot of research going on. Mm -hmm. It's hard to create these things in a way that they do anything outside, would do anything outside the laboratory. It's hard. There have been papers published, you know, in Nature Biotechnology and Science and all these, you know, high-end journals showing that there are prototypes for getting this to work. But looking at all those papers, you'll see that none of them have worked for more than like five generations, even in a laboratory. 
because resistance evolves. And we talked about that in terms of the natural drives before, right? There's always this genes in conflict. Well, you have this gene that's spreading and killing off all of these females or making them not reproduce. Any female that has a little change in its genetic code just naturally occurring, you know, in the millions of mosquitoes out there, it doesn't succumb to that. And as you're wiping out all the other ones, those are the ones that would proliferate, and there you have resistance to the gene drive. So at this point, the resistance even occurs in the lab populations because the way the gene drives are working today, they actually generate their own resistance. I, I won't go into a lot of detail, but just to say we're just at the starting gate in terms of developing it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing, you know, anticipatory governance and thinking about what happens if you have a great gene drive that can wipe out all the rats in the world, right? Mm -hmm. But I guess what I want to go back to is that because of this anticipation that you might have such a perfect gene drive that wouldn't have resistance, people have thought, okay, if we're going to do a release, shouldn't we have something on hand that we could then a secondary release into the population, for example, where we in the laboratory create a rat, for example, that is resistant to the gene drive. Maybe it wouldn't happen naturally, but you could have that on hand. And if you release that one with the resistance, you could slow it down or stop it. But what we what we find in research trials is in, in uncontrolled spread does not sort of rise to the top of, of outcomes, uh, but rather getting the drive to actually function for more than a few generations may, may be the greater well, that, yeah, I think that is the greater challenge. I mean, all of these people who are working very hard are trying to get it to work better. And right. But I think along on the horizon, it's very feasible that we'd have a drive that could spread everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened is I think that concern of the public and the researchers, you know, we don't want to leave the research out of the air. They're not, you know, uh, you know automatons that don't worry about uh, – the loss of rats from the world, right? Sure. They, they're usually the, you know, connected more to the biology than the general public is. So they're concerned about this too. And so the question comes up of, could you have a gene drive, let's say that you release on an island, that would work on the island or work in one city that has a problem with mosquitoes, but would stop at the gates, you know, stop at the ocean level, right? So it can't spread beyond a fixed spatial Uh, spatial limit, right? And so the question was, could we develop spatially contained gene drives Mm -hmm. or could we develop um, temporally limited gene drives? So something that goes into the population and then leaves so that basically you could test things to see if they work well. Because one of the issues is, you know, if you come up with a uh, plan to get rid of mosquitoes' ability to transmit a disease, and it works great, then, you know, people are going to stop spraying for the insects, and they'll be in the environment, and it won't do any harm. But then if the, uh, if the disease organism evolves to get around that RNAi, the RNA interference, all of a sudden you're not ready and that could be a biggest calamity, right? You all of a sudden have an outbreak and everybody is susceptible, there's no herd immunity. So there are a lot of things to be concerned about in terms of the gene jars working too well, mm. working not well enough. But that's the whole idea of having these things limited so that you could try it out on one island or try it out in one city. 
And so people have been working on these approaches. And actually, there have been two uh, gene drives developed only in Drosophila, you know, the fruit fly, just as proof of principle that you could have a pretty well-contained gene drive release that changes, not wipes out a population, but changes it, for example, not to transmit a disease. So I would say that the researchers are working on both sides of this uh, system. I think the folks who work with uh, Anopheles gambi, uh, the malaria mosquito, you know, it's kind of hard to come up with an argument not to wipe out that species. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've looked into the eyes. I remember when I was a Peace Corps volunteer, I, I, I looked into the eyes of a man that had suffered from malaria, and I've never forgotten it. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so but, but not, to with, not to dismiss the concerns about drives, but just mm-hmm. to sort of bring, the, bring the, uh, mm-hmm. that element in. So I, I want to f- repeat for myself and the audience, you've, you've mm-hmm. talked about mitigating risks of, of uncontrolled spread in, uh, in ser- three ways. One is a re- reversal drive, I think it's called, where you, uh, where you introduce a drive that um, overcomes the, I- the initial drive and uh, reverses its effects, its harmful uh, effects. And uh, then you've talked about spatially restricted gene drives or temporally restricted gene drives. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested, how do you accomplish those spatially or temporally yeah, so let me go back to the reversal. I, I okay. should have said something more about that. There are numbers of ways of thinking about the reversal, and, and the term I used was resistance, right? Okay. It would just be resistant. But what you brought up is a very good point, is that some people are actually thinking of having almost like two competing gene drives, right? The okay. reversal gene drive goes in there and knocks out the effect of the first drive. So it's, it's a little bit different, and that, but that's a new one. So to go back, you were asking about the spatial uh, drives. Mm-hmm. Spatial. Think, yeah. Spatially and, limited and, and temporally yeah. limited. Right. So you were asking? Well, how, how would you actually be able to limit it spatially? Uh, okay. All right. Okay. So I'm trying to think of a general answer to that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so what's what's very interesting is it's easier to make a non-limited gene drive, right? That goes everywhere. Yeah, make one that's limited. Yeah, and um, you know we can, you know, you could see how these things get a little bit complicated. But basically, the important piece in one of these space, you know, one of the ideas of a spatial, okay, limited one is one that's called under dominance. Okay, if you have two insects, you know, have big A, big A, you know, and little A, little A, and they're both pretty fit. But when they come together, their offspring are big A, little A, mm-hmm. and those are not fit. So basically, they're under, they call it underdominant when the offspring are not fit. And it has a very interesting evolutionary uh, trajectory where whichever of those two, the big A, big A, or the little A, little A, is more abundant in the population is the one that will go to fixation and, and the other one will be lost from the population. So the thing is that you have to release this gene drive like above 50%. And I'm doing this in very much general terms. Mm-hmm. You know, something that, you know, higher frequency because that leads to them having fewer mistaken matings with the other type just because of their abundance. You know, if you're in a nine to one ratio of the ones you release to the normal ones, the normal ones are going to wind up doing a lot more percentage of their matings with the ones you introduce. The ones you introduce are in such high abundance if they're males and females, they're going to mate with themselves and they'll do fine. And over time, that wipes out the original strain. 
right? But think about that. So then they migrate from that island where they've wiped out the original strain and now the mosquito can't trans transmit the disease on that island. But a few of them get to the mainland. Right. Now they're the ones who are in the minority. They're going to make all sorts of mating uh, mistakes and their offspring aren't going to do well and they'll be wiped out. Huh, okay. Huh. So, so you are the one who determines those things. So there's a huge amount of uh, computer simulation models and other oh. things about the details of that, but that's sort of the approach, you know. So yeah. it's basically a frequency dependence, as they call it. Ah, frequency dependence. Yeah, very cool. Um, yeah, I, 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 and temporally limited. I guess there's some. Equipment. Oh, okay. Yeah, temporally limited is a whole different thing. Oh, okay. And, and actually, there are a number of ways of doing that. But the idea there is that basically, when you have a uh, normal gene drive, all the parts are linked together. Like you know, so the the part that produces the Cas9, the cutting the nuclease, mm -hmm. and the guide RNA are put into the genome right next to each other. Okay. So they always stay together. Okay. Now with a limited gene drive, if you put them far away from each other, right, over time they get disarticulated and they can't work anymore. Oh, I see. Right? So that's one approach. And, and other approaches, something we call the killer rescue approach, uh, pushes a gene in and just by nature you get rid of the part that causes the mortality and then it just becomes a neutral gene over time. Yeah. So there are, you know, people have been working pretty hard at coming up with these ingenious schemes and I think more will uh, be developed over time. Kevin Esfeld is one person who's been working on those. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it sounds like a very fast-moving field. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and, of course, the, the rhetoric and the theory oh. <laughs> moves a lot faster, right, than the laboratory. Yeah. Right. Well, Fred, is there anything else you'd like your, our listeners to know about gene drives? Well, I guess I'd say it, it is really uh, interesting for people to consider the fact that we're not creating something brand new. You know, we are imitating nature when we do these things. And I think it's just fascinating that all of these hidden principles in nature are coming to the fore. And I think actually because of the applied nature, we're going to invest more money in understanding the basic, you know, what's going on in, in natural history. And just say, especially the CRISPR-Cas9 system, Rudolf Berengu at NC State was one of the original people who discovered this in bacteria. And, you know, there's a lot of basic, you know, if you don't have good basic research, you don't come to these applied things, you know? So uh, all of these things um, require that we, <laughs> here comes the plug. Yeah. We support basic and applied research. I'm, I'm going to say that as an applied scientist that we need to support basic research. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I am just so right. impressed with yeah. the work over the years of, of uh, all the people that have given us these tools and, uh, you know, in, in biology. So, yeah, I totally back you up on that yeah. as an applied and, scientist. And the last thing is, and I think you'll get this from Jennifer, is we need more natural scientists, social scientists, and humanities people to recognize that it takes all their expertise yes. to deal with these tough problems. Yeah, here, here. Yeah, thanks for that, too. Well, listen, Fred, uh, thanks for joining us here on uh, the Talking Biotech podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're very welcome. Great. Take care. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech, write a review on iTunes, and tell a friend to listen. 
as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Bencelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.